0: If the Bible was originally in Greek and Hebrew, how did the English translation come about? And how long did it take? Were people really persecuted and killed for just translating the Bible? And which translation is the best for us to use today? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran from Bible805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. These questions and many more we're going to answer in our lesson today entitled, how we got our English Bibles, the long and winding road from Greek and Hebrew to English translation. Now here's where we are in our series on how we got our Bibles. Just to review, we've been looking at how we got the following parts of our Bibles by evaluating the oral history, the documentary evidence, the number of manuscripts, when they were written, and associated historical facts for each of these areas. First of all, for the Old Testament, we looked at why it's even in our Bible, why we can trust it, we looked at the early oral history and how important it was that Adam was still alive when Noah's father was born, Shem, Noah's son, was alive when Abram was born, and many associated facts and history and documents and all the things associated with that. Then we looked at the Apocrypha and why it's not in the Protestant Bibles, and very importantly, how it was related to the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We also looked at the years in between the Testaments. We talked about what went on during these 400 so-called silent years that really weren't silent at all. God was very much at work. This is when the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the different groups developed, and lots of things were going on to prepare for the birth of Jesus. Then we talked about the New Testament, why it is in all of our Bibles, and the absolutely extraordinary His historical and textual support that we have for it. We also looked at the Gnostic Gospels and why they are not included in any of our Bibles. Then we talked about canonicity, why we have the books that we have in our Bibles today. Now, just as a brief review on canonicity, canonicity is not a decision that was made by the Church. In other words, the Church did not decide Let's pick out these books, let's pick out those books. The Church determined which books made up the Bible, but it's important to remember that in that process, the Church discovered what God had already decided were the inspired books of Scripture. They were accepted by the people long before the church councils formalized and formally did what we call canonizing these books. But again, the bottom line that's important to remember is God inspired the Bible. He is the one who decided what would be in the canon and the church simply discovered it. The church councils formalized it. Now after the canon was decided, it was still a long way and a very long time before most people had what we take for granted, our own Bibles in the language that we speak. And before I start in on the rest of this lesson, let me just say that we take it so for granted that we have, I can't <laughs> I don't even know how many Bibles I have as I look around my little study here. I have a chronological Bible and an archaeological Bible. And I have all kinds of different versions and translations and so many study tools. And then all these that are on the computer. We have such extraordinary resources. And we take it so for granted. And I hope to give you just a little bit of a sense as we look at today how unusual that is, how privileged we are that we have what we have today in our ability to study and read the Bible. The story of how we got our English translations is quite long, quite complex, and it's filled with fascinating characters. And, I, it reminds me of how we see these funny old fashioned pictures on the web of woodcuts of people and these men dressed in very uh, formal robes, and we think that they somehow just sat around and, you know, in towers and did the translating or whatever. But these were people of incredible faith and courage. Many of them were hunted, persecuted, beaten, um, strangled, burnt at the stake for what they did. It reminds me of today we see some of these pictures on the web where they'll have a picture of a Vietnam vet and it'll say something like, this old guy that you see in a t-shirt is far more courageous and brave than you can ever imagine. And that's really what the translators of the Bible were like. And this whole long story is what I'm going to share with you today. Now the early translations, initially of course, the Old Testament books were in Hebrew with little bits in Aramaic, and the New Testament was in Greek. The Septuagint, and we've talked about this, we have uh, the lesson on the Apocrypha goes into this in detail. It was a translation of the Hebrew into Greek. Now, it was done not to be some scholarly translation, but at that time most of the people spoke Greek, and so they, they weren't speaking Hebrew anymore, and um, they wanted it in their language, and that's why the Bible was translated into it. There were also some early translations. One of them being um, the Old Testament uh, Old Testament Syrian translation. It was called the Peshitta. And it's one of the early translations. Peshitta means simple text. And it probably it took a number of years for it to be completed. But they started translating it in the 2nd century. By the year 200, this statistic comes from the Wycliffe Bible Translators. By the year 200, the Bible had been translated into 7 languages. By the year 500, 13 languages. And these scattered translations, in effect, show how, how people wanted the Bible in their own language. But overall, the language that was accepted and spoken by most people was changing tremendously after the time of Christ because the world was now shifting to Latin. The majority of the known Western world at that time had been conquered by Rome. They conquered this huge area all the way from the Middle East, North Africa, up into England. And because, again, they were the conquering people, everybody was required to speak Latin. Also, Latin became the language that people, that dominated trade, that people needed to speak for the military, for education, for really all areas of life. It also became the official language. Language of the Christian Church, and even more solidly so when the Church later on split into the Eastern Church and the Western Church. The Western Church was in Rome, which of course naturally, because Latin was the language that was spoken through that entire area, they fastened on Latin as the language for the Church, for the Mass, and eventually, as you'll see, for the first the first translation that they approved of the Bible. Now. Early bits and pieces were translated into Latin, but they were often these sort of scattered, small translations. They were filled with errors until finally a monk named Jerome came along, and he happened to be secretary to the Pope at that time. It was Pope Damascus, and he proposed that an official... Latin translation be made. Now again, you must remember that he proposed that not because he wanted it translated into a scholarly language which we think about Latin being today. No! This was the language of the common people. He wanted the common people, he wanted ordinary people to be able to understand the Bible. They no longer understood Greek, they no longer understood Hebrew. Now he started it in Rome, but after Pope Damascus died, he moved to Bethlehem to finish it. And he worked for over 30 years on that translation in a tiny little cave. And it's really interesting. I, I was telling my Sunday school class how um, I have a very small study. I can almost reach, uh, it's a little bit wider, but I can almost reach the sides of my walls when I, I stretch out my arms. But And I love it. I love my my little tiny area where I do my work. And, and all of that. Well, Jerome uh, was in this little cave in Bethlehem, and it just happened to be right next to the cave of the Nativity. And a lot of people who visit it today don't even realize that on the other side of a door, um, when they look at the cave of the Nativity, was the cave that Jerome translated the Bible in. He also, early on, was buried there, but his bones have since been moved to Rome. Now, the result of Jerome's work was what was known as the Latin Vulgate. He began translating from the Septuagint, but he found a lot of errors in it. And also, he didn't like it that the Apocrypha was in there. He goes, "This is, no, this isn't right. It shouldn't be there. Um, Josephus didn't want it there. It obviously isn't the same as the canonical books of the Old Testament. And so he went back to the original Hebrew. And he then did his translation of the Old Testament from the original Hebrew, and he strongly objected against the Apocrypha being included in his translation, but the Pope insisted on it, and it was put in there, but he wrote down and recorded many of his objections to it. However, overall, the Vulgate was an excellent translation made from the Hebrew and Greek, and it set the standard for quality translations from then on to go back to the original languages. By design, It was also very easy to read and understand. Jerome wanted anybody to be able to read it, to understand it. Vulgate, the Latin, when we say Latin Vulgate, that sounds, again, so scholarly and all, but it isn't. The term Vulgate actually is the term vulgar, meaning the common language. It was a translation for the common people. It was very, very popular, and it also happened to be the translation that was printed in the first Gutenberg Bible, and it remained actually one of the most popular Bibles well into the 20th century. Now, one challenge, though, that Jerome put in there that... uh, I kind of wish he hadn't, but he really didn't have much of a choice at the time, and that was in the order of the the order that he put the books in. It was not chronological. Jerome followed both the Old Testament organization and the organization of the Septuagint, where the books of the Bible, the books of the Old Testament, were organized by type. Or genre. In other words, they were organized by the books of the law: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, then history, chronicles, kings, etc., poetry, psalms, proverbs, etc., and then the prophets. So this is the order that um, the Septuagint had. This is the order of the Hebrew Bibles. This is the order of the Latin Vulgate. He used then a similar one. He was the first one to organize the books of the New Testament. So he followed the same reasoning, putting them also in categories. First, the historical books, the Gospels and Acts. Then come the letters, the epistles. First those from Paul, then those written by other writers, and Revelation at the end. Or, if we lump them into large categories, he had history, letters, and then prophecy. Now keep in mind, though, at the time, many people knew the history of the Bible. They knew when certain prophets spoke, they knew what fit in where. Sadly, many people today have lost that. And so that's why we're going to be, next year, I'm going to be going through, I've done this before, but I'm going to go into even more detail, and I've rearranged things just a little bit. In Bible 805, starting in 2023, we're going to go through the Bible in in a year in chronological order. And if you haven't done that before, I cannot encourage you enough to, uh, whatever channel you decide to go through, whether it's my podcast, the videos, the blogs, whatever it is, to follow along with us next year as we go through the Bible in chronological order. I absolutely guarantee that it will change your life. It will change how you view the Bible when you see actually the order that things happened in. Now, just a little bit more about the organization of the Bible, before we talk about some of the people who were involved in translating it. Chapter, this is super important. Chapters and verses were not in the originals, they were added for study and public reading. And this was a process, and it was adopted in various manuscripts in various ways. I'll get to where it was solidified in a minute. But the chapter divisions that were mostly used were developed by a man named Stephen Langton. He was an Archbishop of Canterbury, and that took place around 1227. Uh, the Wycliffe Bible of 1382 used these chapter patterns and many of and really actually all since then continue to use this. The Old Testament though was divided further into verses by a Jewish rabbi by the name of Nathan in 1448 and a man named Robert Estian who is also known as Stephanus was the first to divide the New Testament into numbered verses and he did that in 1555. Later though where it all got locked into what we have today was when the, Geneva, when the Geneva Bible divided the entire Bible into chapters and verses. And this is like, this is what we have today. And that was done to make study of the scriptures more precise and easier. Now, organized into verses or not... Fewer and fewer people were able to read the Latin overall, but it didn't really matter because most people didn't have a Bible of their own anyway. We, again, do not realize that throughout the majority of human history, people didn't, in the Old Testament or in the New Testament for that matter, go back to their house or to their tent and open up their little scroll for their quiet time. They just didn't have that. Individuals did not have a Bible. But there were always people who cared about the Bible message, who wanted to share it. So the content of the Bible was communicated in very creative ways during this time when few could understand or read Latin. It wasn't translated into modern languages. And most people didn't have Bibles and couldn't read anyway. And the way that was done was through illustrations, through tapestries, through paintings, through stained glass, through drama and music. When you see the medieval cathedrals and you see a lot of the paintings and things like that, it wasn't just art for the sake of art. The artists were actually trying to communicate the stories of the Bible. And one of the most interesting and popular ways was through what became known as the medieval mystery or miracle plays. They they would set up these uh, carts that were sort of movable stages and they would act out different, they called them cycles, they would act out different series of Bible stories. There was one the creation one and there was of course the Easter one that's the really big deal one. And these troops of actors, musicians, priests, and guards would travel from city to city to put these on. And it was, you know, kind of a combination of daily vacation Bible school and the Christmas play and, you know, all this sort of thing rolled into one to teach people the Bible who couldn't read it, but they could see and they could hear the stories of it. Still today, there are um, various passion plays from this time. In Germany, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Ober. Gamma, (laughs) whatever, something. Anyway, their passion play has been performed every 10 years since 1633. They promised the Lord that if this was during a time of the plague, that if no more people died of the plague, that they would put on this passion play every 10 years until the Lord returned, and they have have kept that promise. And um, if you go to the website and you look at um, the video of this, I show you some additional illustrations of the wagons that they did the plays in, some really elaborate sets that we have pictures of, of how the entire town would turn out for this sort of thing. This was really a very, very big deal during those years. Now, back to just the history of translating the Bible into English because each I'm just going to major on the English because each language has its own story and those wonderful stories continue today with groups like the Wycliffe Bible translators still going around the world and translating into languages where people still don't have the own, the Bible in their own language. But we're talking about the English one now. So the British Isles where we start there became Christian because of the Roman influence very early uh, very early in the second century. Now, uh, the Anglo-Saxons would come in and there would be battles and they would take over and it would be pagan for a while and then it would become Christian again and back and forth and back and forth. But scattered attempts were made to translate the Latin Vulgate into more understandable English. And one of the earliest that we have was a monk who was called the Venerable Bede. And he translated the book of John into the language of the common people at that time. Now, it wasn't Latin, but you might have some trouble reading it. Um, Here is John 3.16, and this is actually in sort of Anglo-Saxon, Proto-English, and I'm certain I'm not pronouncing it correctly. You can see it written in the notes and on the video, but let me just try it goes something like this God Lufoda Medan Eraswa that he shed his anisendanu sanu dat non ne forwarde die on hing gele like act habid, Dot essay life. <laughs> and you can kind of get it that dot essay life will have eternal life, you know. And we can sort of see how the English came from it, but it most certainly was not the English we're familiar with today. Now, the years of course passed, and by the time of the Middle Ages, many people couldn't read. Books were very expensive to produce, few had them, there was no universal education. However, if people attended Mass regularly, or if the plays of various sorts came through their town regularly, they would hear the Bible read. And many memorized a lot of it just from hearing it. Now, one thing that I want you to note, because the primary way that people took in the Bible throughout almost all of human history, except really for our very short little window of time now, is that they heard it rather than read it. And the thing that's important for us to understand on this is that how we take in the Bible is not nearly as important as that we take in the content of the Bible. Many people today don't like to read. I've challenged people to, you know, read the Bible, read the Bible, and they go, well, I don't like to read. And what I tell them today is, well, you don't have to read it. You can just listen to it. It's not a problem. You can listen. You can look at YouTube videos. Two absolutely fantastic, fantastic resources that I cannot recommend enough. Number one, the YouVersion Bible app. This is incredible. You download it on your phone. You can download it on your desktop. I just absolutely love it because... Like many of of you, I have my phone with me all the time if I'm waiting. And particularly if I'm getting grumpy about something, I like to be able to pull out my phone, click onto the Bible app, and read some Bible verses and, you know, sort of get my head and heart in the right place. But also, it's fantastic because it will read the Bible to you. When I'm on the exercise bike, when I'm cooking, uh, different times like that, it is wonderful to be able to simply listen to the Bible. Also, another thing that I absolutely love and cannot recommend enough is the Bible Project on YouTube where they go through and they have these wonderful, very interesting little illustrations and go through the entire Bible. Just some fantastic, fantastic resources that I strongly recommend that you check out. Most of all though, the YouVersion Bible app. Get it on your phone. Listen to the Bible. Even if you're a reader of the Bible, it will give you a whole different view of it when you listen to it. And um, especially the Old Testament, And some things are kind of hard to get through. Also, too, listening to it in a contemporary translation, you can't avoid the application when you do that but people still wanted to read the Bible. And a scholar, a teacher named John Wycliffe, he was what they called a pre-reformer. He denounced many of the current practices of the Catholic Church, and one of them was that only the people in the church could read the Bible, or that were sort of in control of reading it, and that it was still just in Latin. He actually produced the first handwritten English language Bible manuscript in the 1380s. Now, it wasn't all by him. He had a group. Of followers who were called the Lollards. They were itinerant preachers, and another name that they had that I really like was the Bible Men. But copies were produced by friends, assistants. They were shared widely, though. Wycliffe and his followers were constantly in conflict with the authorities. Wycliffe managed to die of natural causes, but many of his followers were killed, burned at the stake, because the authorities did not want the common people to have the Bible. Now, his translation was in Middle English, not modern, but it is a lot easier to read than, remember, the translation of the Venerable Bede. The Latin Vulgate, um, he translated from that, and uh, his translation of, and God said, let there be light, is, uh, and God said, "Letst be mod, and "Letst was mod. In other words, uh, God said, well, let there be light, and it was made. John three sixteen. In his English, is for God so loved so the world that He gav His own begotten Son that ach man that believeth in Him perisheth not, but have everlasting life. So. And I'm sure I mispronounced that, but as you can tell, and you can read it again online or in the notes, that it's a lot closer to what we have today. Now, even though he did die of natural causes, it's kind of interesting. Later, after his death, he was declared a heretic for his work. His bones were dug up and burned and thrown into the river. But, of course, he did become a modern hero of biblical translation. And he is, of course, the namesake for the uh, Wycliffe Bible translators today. Now, though not a translation, a very important development at the time was Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press in the 1450s. And the first book, as many of you know, ever to be printed was a Latin language Bible, the Vulgate. It was printed in Manse, Germany. Now, the printing, of course, greatly increased the distribution of the Bible. It reduced the cost. Printing was designed, though it's kind of interesting how... even when a new technology comes along, they want to go back to the older technology. The printing is, to us, rather hard to read. It's in what's called black letter type, and it, um, Gutenberg did that because he wanted it to resemble a written manuscript. You know, printing was kind of suspect at first, but um, he had the the black parts of the manuscript printed, and then they still did the hand illumination of many of the Bibles. But it grazed GREATLY, greatly increased the distribution of the Bibles. And language, uh, the language of it was still Latin, and for centuries to come continued to be the language of scholars and of the church. But again, the common people wanted to read their Bibles, and those who were pastors and teachers wanted them to have it. William Tyndall comes next. Remember, Wycliffe's translations were all handwritten, but he was the first one to print the New Testament in the English language. He translated the same time as Luther who was translating it into German. But unlike Luther, who was protected in his work, he was persecuted, he was hunted, he was imprisoned. Finally, he was strangled at the stake and then burned. And he lived just really a horrible life of struggle, of fighting, of hiding, of running, of smuggling Bibles. And his dying words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Even though he had such a difficult life, and a di- you know, when he was in between running and translating, and hiding, and all this kind of stuff, he was an absolutely excellent writer. He was a beautiful writer, an excellent translator. And his wording, the terms that he came up with, what he translated from the original, this continued to be used in successive versions, and many of the sayings that have come into our language today come from him. For example, here's some of the phrases from Tyndale that went into the King James Version and, of course, into modern common speech today. Here are some of them. Give up the ghost, the powers that be, my brother's keeper, the salt of the earth, fight the good fight, and "a law unto themselves. All of these were the way Tyndale translated the original languages. Now the King James Bible used much of his wording and his work. The King James Bible is not a complete translation from the original Greek and Hebrew. It borrowed heavily from Tyndale and some other translations and scholars, but primarily from Tyndale. So the words that we read, the phrases that we read in it came from him. Now his followers continued his work and the first complete English Bible was printed in 1535 and it's known as the Coverdale Bible. Now, then in 1535, also the Great Bible was the first authorized version of the Bible in English. It was authorized by King Henry the Eighth, and it was to be read aloud in the church services of the Church of England. It was prepared by Miles Coverdale, working under the commission of Thomas Lord Cromwell's secretary to Henry Eighth. In 1538, Cromwell also directed the clergy to provide one book of the Bible, the largest volume in English, and have the same set up in some convenient place within the said church that ye have care of, whereas your parishioners may most commodiously resort to the same and read it. So basically what they did, and this was really exciting for people, is they made all these copies of the great Bible, and it was a big Bible, and they had they distributed them in churches now, because they didn't want anybody walking off with them, these were often chained uh, to the church, and we have re- reprints of, um, we have reprints and images of people sort of sitting around, and, and unfortunately I couldn't find one that wasn't copyrighted, but we have some marvelous images of people sitting around listening to God's Word being read. Someone would stand up and read and people would gather in the church to hear it. Sadly, this did not last, and they decided um sometime after that, that it was, again, illegal to read these, and we have uh, the Queen Bloody Mary coming in who persecuted the people who read the Bible. But during this time, we have some absolutely fantastic stories how these different groups would read and hear it. And there was one woman during this time, her name was Annie Askew, and history shows her shows us a number of pictures of her. She actually was, was quite well known as a martyr, but uh, one of the early pictures is of her sitting in the church, listening to the Bible being read. But she did a lot more than listened. She memorized much of what she heard, and then she began preaching to all who would listen. She was a very staunch reformer a staunch Protestant, um, taught, told people that they needed to know God's word. This is what they needed to do to be saved. Um, really preached against the uh, governing church at the time, and when the the government overall reversed their permission and encouragement for people to read, and they began prosecuting, uh, persecuting. Protestants, she continued to be a very outspoken preacher. Sadly, she was arrested, and not only was she arrested, but it had become illegal to meet in little Bible study groups, and so she was pressured to tell who was studying the Bible with her. But she knew, if she gave away their names, that they would be arrested and perhaps burnt at the stake, and so she refused, and because she refused, she was horribly tortured. She was tortured on the rack, and she's the only woman actually that history tells us from that time who was treated in this way. Her hips and her arms were pulled out of joint and she was in absolutely horrible pain, but she never gave in. She refused to recant her beliefs. She refused to name those who studied with her. And because of that she was condemned to be burnt at the stake. Now over a month later and I can't even imagine. I've had two hips replaced with hip surgery, but I had tons of medication and, you know, all that kind of thing, and I still know the pain that I've gone through. But uh, it Over a month later, she was burnt at the stake, but her body was so broken from the torture that she had received that they had to carry her to the stake to burn her, and her body was, uh, she was propped up on a chair so that she could be burnt. And still, before her death, they challenged her to recant, and instead of that, she cried out, I came not thither to deny my lord and master. She would not recant. The fire was lit, but a supporter of her and the people that she was being burnt with threw gunpowder into the flames, and that exploded and quickly ended her life. When I heard her story and read her story, I have to admit I thought, "Oh my goodness!" You know, I I felt so bad because I, I think of how sometimes you know I just haven't felt like going to Bible study. I just you know I was busy this week, or I didn't feel like doing this, or didn't feel like doing that, and so I I did my own thing rather than studying the Bible or going to a study or a church or something, and when. I look back and see the extraordinary sacrifices and what people went through to give us our Bible today to be able to read and share God's Word. It makes me realize and thank God so much for the privileges that we have today. Now, other Protestants who were persecuted left England, um, and they are the ones that produced the Geneva Bible. And the Geneva Bible was actually produced 51 years before the King James Bible. It was translated, though, in Europe by persecuted English Protestants, including Miles Coverdale, John Fox and William Whittingham, who happened to be the brother-in-law of John Calvin, who, by the way, said, come on over to Geneva. It's safe over here. And many of them fled to Geneva at that time because this was during the reign of the woman who was called Bloody Mary, who killed or burned over 300 Protestants. She wanted to destroy the Protestant Revolution. She wanted everything to just go back to the way it had been. She did not want people to read the Bible in their own language, and needless to say, she died, but the Reformation did not. Now the Geneva Bible that they translated, it was a Bible of many firsts. It was the first Bible to use cross-references, and it was the first Bible to use the verses and chapter divisions that we have today, and it was done this way for easy reference and memorization. It was the first English Bible to translate the Old Testament directly out of the Hebrew. It was the first to be printed in Roman rather than Gothic type for really easy reading, and you can look at it today. And it's, well, it's not really terribly easy to read, but it's, it's, it's readable. It was the first English Bible published for the common man, and it was the first study Bible It has extensive notes, and they're really good ones. Maps and charts and all kinds of things throughout to explain and help people apply the text. It was also the Bible that the Pilgrims brought to America on the Mayflower. Now, it was very, very popular. Shakespeare, William Cromwell, John Knox, John Dunn, and John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, all quoted from the Geneva Bible. It became the Bible of choice for over a hundred years of English-speaking Protestant Christians. As I said earlier, it was the first Bible taken to America and it was the Bible of the Puritans and the Pilgrims. Now, it's been reprinted continuously and it's still popular today in many versions. And I think it's interesting because it seems to be becoming more popular again. But be careful if you consider getting a copy of them. You can buy a facsimile, uh, at ones that is just basically pictures taken of the 1599 translation. Now I did that recently and I kind of wish I wouldn't have because it's really, really hard to read. I have it and it's, it's sort of a treasure and for interest, but much much better, and I actually have this on order right now, is um, a version that has the notes printed in below the regular type and it's printed just like a modern study Bible. This is a version by the Tole Lege press and it's available through Amazon and um, I I I'm excited to get that I'll let you I'll give you a review of it on the Bible 805 website when I get it and have a chance to look it over. The Kindle version I got that also checking that out but I do not recommend that because they intersperse the notes within the text and so it's it's kind of hard to read well to differentiate between what's notes and what's actual Bible text. If you are a long, long time student of the Bible, you know the Bible well. It might be useful for that, but I would definitely not give it to someone who is not familiar with the Bible because it can be very, very confusing. Now. Even though this was very popular and people liked it, it wasn't appreciated by everyone. The annotations that were so important and part of the Geneva Bible were Calvinist and Puritan in character. And because of that, of course, the Anglicans did not like them. Um, and the pro-government group of the Church of England didn't like them at all. So, um, But keep in mind that the notes are not Inspired Scripture. Always remember that uh, there have been various Bibles throughout history where the notes have almost become more important than the words themselves. And so, I, even though I use study Bibles, I like study Bibles. You have to be very, very careful that you not um, confuse them with what is actually the Word of God. The Bishop's Bible was produced in reaction to this under Elizabeth I, and the Rheims douye the edition by the Catholic community. But the big one that came in reaction in some ways to the, um, to the Geneva Bible was, of course, the King James Bible, where he commissioned an authorized version to replace it. And the King James Bible was the work of 47 scholars of the Church of England, done by the King's authority. Now... This, let me tell you, I'll read you what the title page says, but it's not really entirely true. But anyway, here's what it says. The Holy Bible, containing the Old and New Testaments, newly translated out of the original tongues, and with former translations, diligently compared and revised by His Majesty's special commandment. Now, it sounds like they originally translated it, but... they didn't really, because the majority of it is really much more, as they say, with the former translations, diligently compared and revised. They used great uh, a great amount of, of Tyndall's work and... Um, It was by far not a new translation from the original languages, but it was very, very good. And it it was a good translation, and it was one that was approved by the king, so people were able to read it. And in fact, the title page also says, Appointed to be Read in Churches, which was absolutely wonderful. This meant you would not be martyred for reading it in your church. Let me summarize the progression of, of translations after the King James Version. After it came into being, it was the most widely used translation for many centuries. Though it was written in the same style of English that Shakespeare wrote in, people accepted it and they thought that maybe it was sort of a more spiritual way to talk about God, which is really funny, because it really wasn't. Um, at the time, it was the way everybody spoke. It was written in the language of Shakespeare, but Remember, Shakespeare, when Shakespeare wrote, that was the language of the popular plays. And that's how everybody talked. And again, we tend to think of it as very highfalutin or very spiritual or very scholarly or whatever. And it's just that the way we we speak has, has changed. But at the time, that's how everybody talked. In the late 1800s, though, as time went on, there was an explosion of discoveries of ancient texts, and not only of ancient texts, we have that uh, Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, and go back to the lessons that I have on those, not only were these ancient texts discovered, but at the same time, along with them, there were grammars and um all sorts of things that helped biblical scholars really understand the languages better and how they were used at that time and this enabled them to make more quote unquote accurate translations also in 1947 was the discovery of the dead sea scrolls that confirmed the accuracy of the translations that we have and this is so important, and the reason is it refuted the claims that many people have made over the centuries of that the constant recopying and translating of scriptures changed them, and that because of that, a new Bible, a new revelation was needed. That is one of the primary claims of the Mormon Church, but the Dead Sea Scrolls totally disproves that because they were written before 70 AD. And when they were translated, they're almost exactly the same as the manuscripts we have today. So what they've shown us is that we have this incredibly accurate line of transmission of scriptures. So if anybody says, well, it's been recopied and recopied and recopied, and you you don't even know what the original was. And And I've had that conversation numerous times with people, and I'll always say, well, now, you know about the, you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And people go, well, yeah. And I go, you want to know why they were important? And they'll go, well, why Why is that? And I'll go, because these were written, and we know with all sorts of archaeological evidence, that they were written before 70 AD when they discovered them and they compared them for example, Hebrew manuscript with Hebrew manuscript that we have today, they're almost exactly, with a few maybe minor uh, spelling errors, exactly the same. The scriptures that we have, have not changed. and. Again, you don't have to believe that it's inspired or it's divine or whatever, but you do need to be historically, textually honest and say we do have the same scriptures that the early church had. Now, the translation results from these discoveries. This is kind of interesting as I was thinking about it. The revised version, the American Standard Version, the NIV, and the New King James made a really big deal about how they were more accurate translations. And that was rightly so, because we had newer newer manuscripts, well, older manuscripts, had newly come to light, and all these grammars and lexicons, and also, so all of these translations really were much, much more accurate than, for example, the old King James, but it's important to remember that although they might be more accurate, it's just little things that were different. No Major doctrines have been altered in any way, or were different in any way. Nothing about the character of our God, the sinfulness of man, or the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And some people, I've got, I've heard people get, oh, just so uptight. Well, you've got to use this translation because this is, this is exactly what you know what. It's the best one. Well, you know, somehow the church managed to make it through all of these centuries without, you know, the most accurate whatever. Not that that isn't important, but also it's interesting. There were, again, there were all these translations that were made really focusing on accuracy, accuracy, exactness, etc. But there's been another translation movement that really followed the original writings themselves, sort of the spirit of both the original writings themselves, the Septuagint, Jerome, and many of the early translators, and that is wanting the scriptures to be in more understandable language. The Living Bible, Philips, the Message, they're all examples of that approach. Remember, the Greek of the New Testament was koine. It wasn't classical. It was for the common people. And the goal of the historical translators, even though some of their work seems very old-fashioned to us and very sort of super spiritual from the past, it wasn't when it was first translated. The goal of the historical translators was always to get the Bible into the language of the people. And there's a really good chart on this. It's on my website on Bible805.com. I'm sorry I can't include it in the video because I couldn't find a copyright free illustration of it, but I can use it for teaching purposes on my website, so I have it there if you want to look at it. And one more note, that's why I am such a strong supporter and promoter of various online resources, things like the U Verse Bible Version, because being able able to listen to or to access the Bible on your phone is so wonderful today. That is truly a heritage of the early translators, of even the early writers, to make God's Word accessible to God's people in the way that they will take it in. And now I want to just share a few thoughts of mine on translating all the translations into all the different languages. Now, here are my premises that support my conclusions. Number one, God created language. Number two, God is eternal. Number three, God values his word. Therefore, it seems to be that he knew the language that he would choose for originally recording his word. But, he also remember, is the creator of all of the languages that it would be translated into. And I don't think any of those are secondary to his plans. I don't think any of them are a diminishment, but facets of a jewel that enable us to understand more completely the thoughts of our God in a way that just one language doesn't do. In conclusion, people always ask, So, what is the best translation? My conclusion from studying so many of these, reading so many, is they're all good. In part, it depends on what you're looking for. Do you want a precise study? Do you want to know exactly what the historical words meant? Or are you looking primarily for application? I find, well, I do both. I love to do um, really in-depth word studies, and look at the Greek, and look at the Hebrew, and sometimes look at the Latin in between, and just various things like that. I enjoy that. But I find it much more difficult to avoid actually applying a Bible verse when I listen to it or I'm reading a modern translation. There's something about the Living Bible and the message that just sort of smacks me upside of the head when I'm maybe listening to that. And it tells me to do a certain thing. I can't, you might say, hide behind the old English or whatever. I much more clearly hear how I'm supposed to apply it in my own life. I do strongly recommend, though, reading a variety of translations. This is one of the best commentaries available. Again, think of them as facets of the jewel of God's Word. Different translators put it in different ways. We can see different different images of the truth. It's all the same truth, it's all the same core meaning, but we'll see things in a different way. The bottom line though, and many people say this, and I, I can't affirm it enough, is that the best translation is the one you will read, study, and apply to your life. But God continues to translate the Bible not only into words, but into our lives. And I want to close with this wonderful little saying. Many of you have heard it before, but think of it in terms of Bible translation. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day. By the things that you do and the words that you say, people read what you write, distorted or true. What is the gospel? According. That's all for now. Please check out the notes, other materials, and other resources that will help you understand this topic and many related topics better at www.bible805.com. And until next time, I'm Yvonne Prent, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest. From loneliness to knowing you are loved. From turmoil to peace. From wherever you are on your spiritual journey. To a growing knowledge of God's word. And in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.